Uh, thankful that you're here with us. Uh, I'm Daryl, the assistant pastor here. We have been as a congregation uh, in the book of Genesis, uh, specifically the first 11 chapters uh, is what we're going to spend our time uh, walking through together. And we are going at a snail's pace uh, to really highlight uh, and spend time and, and dwell upon uh, all that the Lord was doing uh, in those first days of creation. Uh, it's been said that the first 11 books of, or first 11 chapters rather of Genesis uh, can tell you everything you need to know about the world. Uh, you see God's beauty, you see his grace, his majesty, his design, his intention. You see marriage, you see uh, sin, you see kids, you see uh, destruction, you see poor communication, you see families fighting. All these things uh, are brought to us in the first 11 chapters. Uh, and so that's why we have chosen to spend that time with you. And this morning we do come to uh, what is really the cosmic car wreck uh, of scripture, uh, is known as the fall of man, uh, the fall of mankind. Uh, everything uh, that is wrong with your world is because of this. Uh, every heartbreak, uh, every sadness, everything is maladjusted, everything is crooked, uh, everything is difficult. It can all be traced back to this moment. Um, this was when uh, your shalom was shattered. Uh, this is when peace uh, was broken, the way that a rock uh, would break a window. Um, sin and evil rushed in uh, to a world that was perfect. And so uh, it's, it's sad, uh, it's terrible, and it's also a place that we see um, the Adam and Eve in this moment, we're not beyond redemption, uh, which means that you're not beyond redemption. Uh, it means that I'm not beyond redemption. Uh, what we find in this passage is amidst the destruction, uh, amidst the rebellion that our first parents had, our first parents were rebellious. Uh, they, they wanted to be. Uh, they weren't innocent in that. Um, and neither, neither are you, um, neither am I. Uh, as the great theologian Hank Jr. said, this is our family tradition from now on. That our families are marked, we're all marked by the stain of this sin. Um, and because Adam and Eve's fall into sin led them to hide from Jesus, led them to hide from God the Father as he walked through the garden, what they weren't counting on uh, was that God was gonna look for them. Um, they were able to hide uh, from his presence, but they could not hide from his grace. Uh, so that's what we're gonna see this morning. Uh, so if you have a copy of the scriptures, Genesis chapter three is where we'll be. And it'll also be on the screens if you don't, uh, verses one through 13. So let's give our attention this morning to the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be made, was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard, you, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray together. Uh, Jesus, the familiarity of this um, can almost leave us aloof. Uh, can almost leave me jaded. Um, just another sin sermon. Um, Lord, would you in your mercy let it be uh, more than that? Uh, would you let it be a story, uh, an account uh, of the worst thing that has happened uh, aside from the day that you uh, we're crucified for my sin. Uh, so Jesus, uh, have mercy on us uh, as we walk through this passage. Let's hear your name when you pray. Amen. Uh, so there's three things we'll see in this passage. We'll see the serpent, we'll see the silence, and we'll see the search. So let's look back at verse one and the serpent's entrance into this. Moses tells us now that the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent starts talking to Adam and Eve, which is already insane. Um, that might be the weirdest thing in scripture. Uh, it's already crazy enough, right? Now that we, now what we do know here is that because scripture interprets scripture, uh, there are commentaries in other parts of the Bible that offer a commentary on this verse uh, that really tell us that Satan was behind all this. So at the very least, uh, Satan uh, had inhabited the serpent to get it to do his will. Um, so Satan is using this snake uh, as his mouthpiece. Uh, John Calvin, who's kind of a big deal in Christian history, uh, said that Satan had come to them through the snake because had Satan shown up in his own presence, it would have spooked Adam and Eve. Um, and so he chose something that they would have already been familiar with. And so he comes to them uh, through this serpent, uh, which for some reason didn't spook them when this thing started talking. Um, but it, according to Calvin, would have spooked them if Satan would have showed up. I'm like, I don't know, they're both probably pretty scary. Um, but the snake is talking to them. Uh, they would have, the snake, it seems, from Moses' words, had the reputation uh, of being crafty, of being cunning. And so it comes to Eve and it begins to ask her a series of questions and then makes a series of promises. Up until this point, it was only God who made promises. It was only God who made declarations. It was only God that Adam and Eve uh, uh, seemed to be talking with, uh, at least is what we have recorded. And uh, so this serpent shows up and begins to make these promises. And um, as God had given these directives, God had told them that in the garden, uh, they had the entire thing. You could play in this whole garden. Uh, you could play in this whole land. They had the entire cosmos to play in. Um, to subdue it, to, to have dominion over it, to work it, to keep it, to take care of it, to love one another, to live within it. Uh, do all those things, just don't eat of that tree. Uh, that's the only thing that God had asked them to not do. Um, and they had a God who had met all their needs. They had a purpose, they had a mission. And in chapter two, God tells Adam, hey man, all of it is yours. All of it is yours. Just don't eat that tree or you'll die. Uh, and then he made Eve, and then chapter two closes, as we spoke last week, uh, with this wonderful but terrible almost statement to us at, at now uh, that they were naked and not ashamed. 
Uh, it was the last thing that Moses wrote uh, before uh, he brought this chapter uh, into, our, into our scriptures. And so this is where evil comes in. Look at Satan's question here, the servant's question to Eve. Did God really say, did he really say that? That if you touch that tree, if you eat of that tree, you'll die. Did God actually say not to eat of that? It's almost like trying to reason with a middle schooler. Like, really? Is that the case? Is this what God really said to you? And Eve responds, yes. He said we could have any tree we want except that one. And he said not to touch it or we'll die. That's when Satan knew that he had her. Because here's the thing. God never told them if they touched it, they would die. So what has happened is this. God's word has already gotten twisted. It's already gotten twisted. Satan knows God's word better than you do. Uh, He knows it better than I do. And he knows that because Eve said that, making her doubt God is gonna be real easy. Uh, And so she has uh, already twisted God's word and convincing her to rebel was gonna be pretty easy. Look at what he does next. You won't die. You won't die, Eve. God's crazy. You won't die. He, he, here's what God knows. If you eat that fruit, you're gonna be like him. He doesn't want that. God's holding a little bit back for himself. Sure, he's given you all this, but really, he told you you couldn't have that? God's holding out on you, Eve. God's holding out on you, Adam. The first failed promise in this world of perfection was told by Satan when he says you won't die. You're not gonna die. You're not gonna die and you'll be like God. He made these two promises that were not gonna be true and everything is about to change from this moment on because isn't that what we're fighting for as we sit here on a weirdly cold March day? We're sitting here and what we're fighting for every moment is this. Let me stave off death and let me know everything there is to know. Shoot my face full of Botox, color my hair. I'll go join a CrossFit gym. I'll run triathlons. I'll eat kale. I'll do whatever it takes to not feel the effects of aging. I turned 41 on Friday. It hit hard. It was terrible. Don't woo me. It was awful. (laughs) Let me fight that off. Let me fight off feeling old. Let me fight off aging. Let me fight off death. And then tell me everything I need to know. Somebody give me a good podcast recommendation. I got to drive to the beach. Somebody, somebody, what did Rogan say about that? What did Brene Brown say about that? Somebody tell me, give me everything I need to know. Give me another personality test. Give me another Enneagram from somebody else. Like give me something that lets me understand myself because if I can understand everything there is to know, then I'm safe. And if I'm safe, then I don't need God. Give me everything I need to know. Give it all to me. This was what Satan was promising. This is what Adam and Eve fell for. And Satan didn't show up telling Adam and Eve they didn't exist. My friend Brian Sorgerfow pointed this out. Satan didn't show up telling Adam and Eve that God didn't exist. He didn't even show up telling Adam and Eve that, that God wasn't really holy. He doesn't question God's holiness. He doesn't question God's power or his omnipotence here. He doesn't question God as a creator of, or, of, or anything of that sort. What he gets Eve to question here is God's goodness. Sure, 
He created the world in six days just by speaking. Sure, he made all this food for you. Man, I love you. He just spun the world into existence and then he sits back and kicks up his feet. Right, he rested. He doesn't care about you. Eve, hear me out. God is real, but I don't think he loves you the way that he says he does. Otherwise, why would he tell you no? God loved you. Why would he give you any kind of boundaries? That's not love. That's selfishness. God's holding back on you. He's keeping a little bit for himself. He can't be good. It has to be, Adam and Eve, that God is holding back on you. He knows if you bite that fruit, you won't need him anymore. Look how codependent God is. You do that and you won't need him anymore? He's crazy. Just take it. Think of the implications that this has for us. In moments of temptation, which befall all of us, if scripture is true and it is, it won't be a temptation unless we're doubting for a second that God's not really who he says he is. It's not a temptation to us unless we're doubting already that God really is who he says he is. So when Eve is tempted here by Satan, he just plants a small seed of doubt that God doesn't care about her. Daryl, man, a marriage is tough. It's tough. I don't think it'd be as tough if I'd have married somebody else. I don't want my husband to die, but you know, I think about who I'd marry if he did. I know God said like, we're not supposed to have sex, right? Sure. But why is it so fun? Why is he holding out? Why would he say something like that? Why does God get a say over who I marry? Why does God get a say over how I spend my money? That's not love. God wouldn't tell me no. God's here to make me happy. That's what Satan wants you to think. It's pretty, Darrell, it's pretty antiquated, the stuff that, that you're talking about. Those are seeds of doubt uh, that God has has been holding back on you and we're all guilty of it. I'm certainly guilty of it. I'm, I'm, in front of, I'm in the front of the line. So Satan is saying to us, God doesn't really care about you. He might be powerful. He might have done all those things, but he doesn't really like you. He might love you, but he doesn't like you. So go ahead. Go ahead and send that text you have no business sending. God's only weird about it because he's not interested in your goodness. And so here we have Adam and Eve. Eve is standing before the serpent. The serpent's talking to her and she falls for it. Moses then tells us that she sees the fruit, that she wants it because it looks like it's good for food. So it kind of satisfies the, the lust of the flesh that she feels. Like I'm kind of hungry. That looks like it'd be really tasty. And then she grabs it because she saw that it was pleasing, like it satisfied her eyes, it was pretty. And then she took it and she ate it because she saw that it would make her wise, which really satisfies the pride that she had. And she made a decision and the false assumption that if she wants something, she should have it. That if she's hungry, she should eat. That, if, if she, that she should have access to everything that God has access to and ultimately that God didn't really care about her. So she was going to make life work on her own terms. The, the serpent came in and changed the world, but not for the better. When the world was designed to point to God and his goodness and his care and his love for it and for all of its inhabitants, 
Eve took that arrow that pointed to heaven and she pointed it to herself and said, everything is now about what I want. I make the rules now. Autonomy is the name of the game. This is what Eve is saying. So where, we have to ask this question, where's Adam in all this? Um, this, this, this banter, this dialogue between uh, the serpent and Eve, Eve gets a little bit of a bad rap in scripture. Again, she was complicit, right? Again, she did this. So part of that's true. But Adam's silence is deafening. And as we see in verse six, he was there the whole time. It says that she took the fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. This brings us to our second point, the silence, the silence of Adam. We've all heard this old saying that it takes two to tango. That's certainly what's going on here. Again, verse six says that she took the fruit and gave some to her husband and he was there. And then verse seven comes in. This is where Shalom is shattered. This is where your peace is shattered. The eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. Because we're told in verse six of what Eve had done and gave it to Adam, it's safe to infer that Adam was around this whole time. Uh, and Adam doesn't do his job. And what's sad about that uh, is that churches across the globe have kind of used this to like bump up their men's ministry and like force you to go camping. And they're like, hey, wuss, go camping. It's Adam's fault. I'm like, all that is wrong. And so it's, it's easy to beat up on Adam here. And honestly, Adam deserves it. Uh, he fell and he fell massively. But here's what's in question. Adam had dominion over all the animals. That's what God gave him, right? Adam had dominion over all these animals that any moment he could have stepped in and told the serpent to, to get lost and he didn't. He didn't exercise his dominion. He also had a responsibility to relay the word of God to Eve. Remember that Eve wasn't there uh, when God gave these commands to Adam. So we can infer through scripture that it was his responsibility uh, to, to relay to Eve what God had said. And it, it looks at least if he did that, he didn't do it correctly. And he also had the mandate to care and protect for her. And he didn't protect Eve from this serpent who was clearly lying to her. It appears he just stood by and let it happen. Then verse seven comes in and everything changes. They started sewing fig leaves for themselves. Their eyes were opened. They were, they were, they were given a new reality. That's what Satan had promised them. It just wasn't the one he had promised. They thought they would then see the world the way that God sees it, but instead they see the world through the lens of shame. They immediately see that they're naked and it says they started sewing fig leaves for one another. And we have been doing that ever since. We've been doing it ever since. What can I do to hide who I really am? I know what I'll do. I'll throw myself into my career. At the cost of everything else in my life, I'll just double down on work. That'll, that'll save me. That'll get me there. That'll make me feel right. That'll make me feel justified. Or I'll throw myself into my personality or I'll throw myself into my hobbies. I'll sew these fig leaves. I'll go buy a Jeep Wrangler. I'll do whatever it takes to prop up this fact that I'm not who I really am. And I wanna show the world that if you were to just take a small peek behind this facade, you would see just a pile of shame that stands guilty in the face of the perfection of Eden. 
And we've made a darn good living out of being silent to our responsibilities and of hiding amongst the trees, hoping and praying that no one notices. That's what Satan wants you to do. That's what your sin wants you to do. That's what your shame wants you to do. You can either grandstand and whine and complain and scream and cause fights and prop yourself up with this frat boy SEC confidence, or you can hide and hope that you'd never be noticed. That's what we call introverts, and you're terrifying. I married one of you, and it's terrifying. This is what Satan is wanting to get these two to do. Just hide. Take the fruit, then go hide. Evil wants you to doubt God's goodness. Shame wants you to hide. The silence of Adam wants you to believe that you have absolutely zero business pursuing any sort of righteousness. Instead, just stand idly by and let life happen to you. Don't speak up, don't get in anybody's way. But all these things failed in one massively huge way. Satan didn't plan on this, Adam didn't plan on this, Eve didn't plan on this. They didn't plan on the fact that God was gonna come looking for them. This brings us to our last point, the search. Uh, Verse seven is shattering. That's where uh, everything falls apart. And then in verse eight, it picks up with God himself beginning to pick up the pieces. It says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid. He said, who told you you were naked? You can almost hear the sadness. You can almost hear the heartbeat here, or heartbeat, heartbreak here. Who told you you were naked? You did it. You did it, didn't you? You ate of the tree that I told you not to eat of. Satan always goes after God's favorite things. Who told you you were naked? You ate of the tree, you disobeyed my word. You ran head first into the very thing I was seeking to protect you from. And God's word we find out here wasn't a fence around an amusement park, as my friend Les says. This wasn't a fence around Dollywood. This wasn't a fence around Disney World, which is the poor man's Dollywood. This wasn't a fence around something that is wonderful and great and fun and loving and beautiful. It was a fence around Chernobyl, around destruction, around death. And Adam and Eve launched headlong into this. And then they started playing the blame game. This is another crazy part of this passage. If we look at verse uh, 11 and 12, and God has said, who, who have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? In verse 12, the man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. God, this is kind of your fault. You know, I was doing, I was doing great. I, I lived in perfection. I was friends with some goats. Had a pretty good life, God, until you put this woman here who then showed up and gave me this fruit. Like, God, this is your fault. It's her fault and it's your fault, but it's not mine. And then God looks at Eve and says, what have you done? And she said, the serpent, it was him, he did it. What's the implication there? The serpent you put here, God, he did this. Why'd you make him? God, everything is your fault. It sounds comical if it weren't so true. God, you put me in this stupid city that I can't afford. God, you made it snow today. What's the matter with you? God, why? Why? Why did you do this? 
You put me in this marriage and my husband doesn't love me. God, I'm single. God, this paycheck doesn't pay the bills. You put me in this job. You gave me these terrible kids. You gave me all this traffic. Like, God, this is your fault. Everything about my life sucks and it's kind of your fault because it's certainly not mine. Everything that is difficult for us is attributed not to sin and the brokenness and our participation in those things, but to God and the lie that Satan said that he doesn't really care about you. Because God, if you really cared about me, then these things wouldn't happen. But look what God does here. He takes it. He doesn't come in swinging. He doesn't come in on two wheels. He doesn't come in screaming. He doesn't come home like some drunk dad who's mad. He just takes it. Now we're gonna see next week when Elliot comes to preach to us that some curses were levied. God's, God's mad. God's not happy with sin. He knew everything they were gonna do. He went looking for them anyway. That's what evil doesn't have a category for, y'all. Evil doesn't have a category for grace. Satan didn't have a category for a God who would respond this way. Adam and Eve didn't have a category for a God who would respond like this. The uh, new season of Ted Lasso started last week. I don't know if you're watching. Um, I won't, I'm not gonna spoil anything about telling you this story. I don't know if I should even tell you to watch it because they cuss a lot, but I, I kind of do too. So, like, it's fine. Just go watch it. Kids, ask your parents if you can watch it. When they just had a baptism, they'll say yes. Um, and we saw, if, if you've followed along, at the end of last season, uh, Nate the Great, Nate the, uh, the assistant coach who kind of started out as this kit manager uh, for the team, uh, has worked his way up to assistant coach. Um, and he's kind of this playmaking genius. Uh, and Ted really loves him. Uh, but Nate gets bitter toward Ted because Ted's getting all this, like all these accolades and all this glory. And you can watch uh, in Nate's, like his physical appearance and his physical presence, how his bitterness is just kind of eating him up. Like he's starting to go gray. He's getting really mad. He's, he's really short with folks. Um, and then the new season starts with him actually working for kind of Ted uh, and his boss's ex-husband, kind of their mortal enemy. And uh, they're at a press conference and they ask Nate the question, um, because Ted's team's not really that good. Um, he said, they're projected to finish 20th, Nate. What do you think about that? And he said, that's only because there's no 21st. And he was like so proud of himself, which was a sick burn. I'll give him that. But then they asked Ted, hey, Ted, what's your response to this? You know, Nate said this. And his response was, I think Nate's gonna be a really good coach. He's a really smart man. And I wish him the best of luck. And then he kind of gets self-deprecating. That's where this analogy falls apart. But we're gonna stop at that part. Evil has no category for grace. This is, what, this is what this show wants us to see, that there's something about kindness and there's something about grace that disarms evil. Robert Capon, he said this about grace. Y'all, this is good. This is real good. Grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away. It only works for losers and no one wants to stand in their line. The world of winners will buy caseloads of moral advice, grosses of guilt-edged prohibitions, skids of self-improvement techniques, and entire truckloads 
of transcendental hot air. But it will not buy the free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the lamb. It won't buy free forgiveness because that threatens to let the riffraff into the supper of the lamb. Satan was lurking in the garden and grace lurks all the more. And like Adam and Eve, we have said, I'm gonna make my own way, God. I don't need you. I'm gonna build a world where I can be independent of you. And God said, it's not gonna work. It's not gonna work. You can try it, but it's not gonna work. Instead, would you believe in me? Would you believe that I'm actually good? Would you believe that I have tons and tons and truckloads of affection for you. I have made you, you are mine. I call you my own and I'm gonna prove that by sending my son who will die for you to call you home, to buy you back, to go into the weeds and find you and pull you out. See, there's a reason that God, that Jesus rather is called the second Adam in scripture. It's because when Jesus was baptized, he was sent out into the wilderness He's in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan goes and finds him. You can read this in Matthew chapter 11. Satan tells him, hey, Jesus, you're fasting. I know you're hungry. Why don't you turn that rock into some bread? Satisfy the lust that your flesh has right now. Just get some food. He then takes Jesus on a mountaintop and shows him everything. He says, look, all this can be yours. Satisfy the lust of sight. Look how pretty all this is, Jesus. All of it could be yours. And he tells him, what if you tossed yourself off that building and then sent some angels to come and catch you? Like flex flex your muscles, show us how powerful you are. Show us your pride. And Jesus says, no. He could have fought him. He could have done all those things that was well within his rights. But Jesus responds not with his own anger, but he responds with the word of God. He uses scripture and he lets that fight for him. And he remains totally obedient, obedient to God. He does what Adam and Eve failed to do. He remained faithful to God's word instead of acting out on his own human will. This is what we call God's active obedience for you. And then in his passive obedience, when he goes to the cross to buy us back, to secure for himself his own bride, he didn't throw her under the bus like Adam did. He doesn't look at God the Father and say, why are you punishing me when she's the one who did this? God, you're the one that gave me this bride. She's crazy. He doesn't respond that way. He says, let the hammer of judgment fall on me and let her go free. I'll die so that she can live. I'll die that she can know that above all else, she is valued and loved and pursued by the God of the universe who invites her into a relationship with himself. And I will return. And and when the evil one is cast into hell, she will know this, that I am with her and I am for her. Jesus being the second Adam isn't something that Paul came up with so he could sell some New Testaments and put them in hotels. It was his plan all along. It's not that we shame Adam. It's not that we shame Eve. It's not that we shame men for being more like Adam and tell them to stop playing video games. You might need to do that. I don't know. But this story isn't to show us that we could be like Adam. 
The story shows us that you couldn't be Adam if you wanted to. You couldn't be Adam if you wanted to. You think you could go back like Adam and even just say, oh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't fall for it. God's saying you would. You would. And then you'll blame. And you'll hide. And you'll be prisoners to your shame. But instead, he says, let me be the one who is supposed to do what Adam was, who does what Adam was supposed to do. Let me be the one who cares for my bride. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray together. Jesus, if only, uh, if only, if only, uh, we have the power in and of ourselves to believe this. Still our hearts would rebel. Still we would rebel. We're so bent in on ourselves that we can't even see your goodness if you don't, unless you show it to us. Uh, so Jesus, would you do that for us? We're blinded by sin. We're blinded by shame. We're blinded by the thought that we could have we could have done it right. Uh, Jesus, would you come and shatter all those? Would you restore our peace that was shattered so long ago? Uh, Lord, would you be so kind and merciful as to hasten the day of your return uh, that we could see you face to face. But Lord, until then, uh, send your Holy Spirit to empower us. Um, even if it's just enough so we could raise our head to see that you really do love us. Uh, Jesus, we repent of doubting uh, your goodness to us. Uh, would you lead us uh, into a new reality uh, that you are the one who truly cares for his creation? That's uh, your name I do pray. Amen.